Welcome back, fans, to the ones that have been listening to us. We still appreciate you, and welcome to the new people. Um, so May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we've decided to uh, really hone in on addiction and mental health this uh, this coming May. And today, I'm going to be interviewing my brother Noah. Um, he is in recovery from addiction, and I, I'm, I'm Chelsea. And we have... Hey, Joe's here. Hey, guys. Ryan's here as well. And I am Noah. And and so I really wanted to... Um, for the fans out there that really wanted to step into the shoes of an addict and to get a glimpse of what it is like or could be like to live as one, uh, for those that are in recovery themselves, we're proud of you peeps, and we wholeheartedly believe that it's one of the hardest things to overcome. Um... I can't speak for everybody here, but I, I think that um, it's, you know, an over-encompassing problem in, in the world. So, so my brother Noah, he's here today to talk about him and his addiction and recovery. Uh, this is Noah's story to tell. So, although I do have questions, um, I do want him to, you know, share with us whatever he feels he is most comfortable with. Um, I think you're an inspiration and a hero to, to me, especially, and a lot of others out there. And I would like to first be raw and truthful. Uh, my brother would have been sober on April 15th for eight years uh, this year. And he called me last Thursday and expressed that he was doing his rounds and admitted to having had relapsed. Um, he was drinking alcohol every day for about a month. Um, and his drug of choice, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is opiates. That was kind of your, your thing. Correct. Um, and then, you know, he had been really, really dove into 12-step programs. And then um, meetings had stopped after COVID, uh, and during and after COVID for quite some time. So he kind of fell out of the habit of going. And, of course, just like the rest of us, he and his wife have had some hardships to deal with on top of all of that. So it's been a rough couple of years. And I'm sure we've all faced some sort of, some sort of hardship um, in one way or another. So although I, I am not sitting here trying to justify anything and making any kinds of decisions, you know, uh, to pick up and use or really just any, any uh, decision that can impact us in a negative way, we can all essentially agree that we were all victims of COVID, right? It's been an endemic, a, a pandemic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Nobody, it fucked everything up. And nobody was prepared for what what that brought into our lives. And on top of that, we have our daily hardships, and we all deal with it differently. So um, I'm proud that he had the courage to reach out to his AA buddies for help on Thursday morning. Um, and then he reached out to his family to recognize some of the feelings that he had with re relapsing. You know, he, he recognized guilt and shame as two of the, two of the primary uh, experiences that he had been having since he started to use again. And that's very common amongst people that have addiction-related issues. Um, so I, I just want to throw that out there. Uh, and then his new, so his new sobriety date is April 29th, 2022. So I want to recognize you for your accountability, and I appreciate you for reaching out and sharing with me that, you know, you you fucked up. That's what we do as alcoholics. Yeah. We fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. honestly, that's, that's what we do. Yeah, you know, yeah, with I the, know. The tools we, we learn in the program of, 
Alcoholics Anonymous, and if we're not using them, and, you know, like, when, before COVID, you know, I was going to one meeting a week, and it kept me grounded, but I wasn't calling guys, I wasn't hanging out with sober guys, I wasn't working the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I wasn't picking up my phone, so, like, I got into a really dark place in my head, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have a drinking problem, I have a thinking problem, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, I went to a dark spot, and... You know, two weeks before my eighth year anniversary, I found myself drinking three quarters of a liter of Jack Daniels, Damn. and I did it every day for a month Damn, straight. Dude. Yeah, Damn. and and it was that quick. Yeah. Like you know, coming up on eight years, thinking you know, this won't happen to me. You know, I won't drink. Mm-hmm. Or you know, throughout those two years of COVID, you know, thinking, yeah, maybe I can just drink. You know, like mm-hmm. maybe I can do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And just those thoughts. You know, I stopped praying, and I've never been religious, man, like, ever in my life. But when I came into AA, they told me to start praying to something, whether you, whatever you believe in. It's a, it's a God of your understanding, and, you know, I did it. And for the first five years of my sobriety, my life flipped. I mean, it changed for, like, I had the best best life ever. You know, like, I changed 100%, and, you know, something in my mind... I used to obsess about alcohol and drugs and whatever. And, you know, the obsession was just a daily a daily thing. I mean, you obsessed about how you're going to get high next, how you're going to get drunk next. And when I started going to AA and working the 12 steps, working with guys, praying, that went away. And, like, mm-hmm. that's when I finally found that there's something in AA. Like, mm-hmm. how did that just leave my fucking head? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like... I obsessed, you know, for my whole life, yeah. you know, about yeah, drugs and alcohol and, yeah, so it was, uh, I started at a really young age, man. I mean, yeah. how old were you? Um, I mean, I found my dad's pipe <laughs> when I was seven years old and oh. I brought it down to the beach in Little Punderson when Casey lived up the street from us mm-hmm. and I knew how to, how to use it cause I'd seen it done. And seven years old, and I was hitting it, wow. like trying to light it, you know. Right, yeah. Damn. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> you know, yeah. seven years old, man. Damn. And uh, yeah, and then and then I broke my arm when I was eleven. I got the compound fracture and snapped my oh, bone out I my remember arm. Remember that? And uh, they per- prescribed me Percocets. And at eleven years old, I'm taking one Percocet, and I'm like, eh, I kind of feel good. Yeah. So I'm like, what will two feel like? Mm-hmm. Oh. take two <clears throat> and then before you know it you know like I'm like wanting these Percocets and I'm 11 year old kid you that's know it's crazy that would prescribe an 11 year old yeah. those yeah that's but wild. at the same time I was in a lot of pain because I had right. a major surgery I had plates in my arm screws I mean my arm was how'd you break your arm again skateboarding that's right yeah and uh that's right it hurt it really did hurt that but, hurt dude you know like after the surgery you know all the prescriptions and medications I was taking I mean it, it got me hooked and then I just fell in with you know a certain crowd and started smoking weed started drinking on the weekends then I'm going into school thinking what am I going to do Friday can't wait till Friday's here not worrying about school like can't wait for the party to happen and the whole weekend's a blur and this went on until I was 22 years old you know mm-hmm. like just a blur you know job losses jails rehabs you know mm-hmm. like in and out you know and it was, uh, 
it was time for a change. And the only thing I ever found to be able to change me was Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things that I kind of wanted to reflect on, you know, is, you know, you and I grew up pretty close. <laughs> Actually, re- very close. Um, we're considered Irish twins for the fams out there. Um, I was born two weeks before my brother turned one. And uh, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I probably kept you alive most of our childhood and adolescence. <laughs> uh, so, you know, as a, as a young adolescent brain, and especially for males... Um, We're dumb. You're dumb. (laughs) And it's not to your fault, necessarily. You know, there's a lot that goes into that. But male brains actually don't fully develop into adult brains until your late 20s. So women are in their early 20s. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes late teens. So. A lot of stupid you know. decisions. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that thought, that belief system that you're invincible. Um, that's not true, y'all. Uh, so, And that's a common adolescent brain. So so believe me when I say that, that you're not invincible. You know, we're all vulnerable of all kinds of things that happen to us in life. So it's about recognizing what we have control over. And so I wanted to share the serenity prayer for the people out there. I think I use this a lot in the therapy that I do because a lot of people have this uh, obsession with the fact that they can't control things, control issues if we're putting layman's terms on it. And then it, it causes a lot of problems in their life. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And I know that that's probably been one of your mottos for the last several years. Absolutely. I say it every day. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, another memory I want to share, too, is coming to the first AA meeting that you had to lead um, over there in Chardon. Mm -hmm. You know, that room was absolutely full, packed, packed full of people um, inspired by you to to get and stay sober. And Cheyenne and I were both there, and that was a really proud moment. I don't think there was an empty seat in the house. It was packed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so we already talked about when you did start first using seven years old. God, I I don't think I had any idea that that's when you started, you know. But it's a reflection of your past, you know. You we we as alcoholics and drug addicts know how to hide it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you can do whatever you want behind, you know, and hide it from anybody, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get really good at manipulating and and hiding and lying and you know everything that comes along with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, when did you first notice that your drug use and habits were escalating into something worse? I'd have to say when uh, I started doing heroin. You know, like, before that, you know, I was doing, you know, pills and, you know, drinking. And, you know, honestly, going back to 2012 when I got arrested at the house and the cops came and took me to jail, um, I got an assessment in jail and... They told me that I was an alcoholic, I was addicted to amphetamines, I was addicted to opiates. And I think those were the only three things. And at that time, that was the first time I ever heard that I was an alcoholic. I was addicted to amphetamines. And I kind of had a, you know, like, okay, opiates, yeah. But alcoholic and amphetamines, I'm like, no way. But then looking back at it, it's like, yeah, big so, time. Okay, so getting a full drug and alcohol history of you 
really allowed you to... Yeah, because, I mean, I was dumb to the fact, like, you know, I didn't know what alcoholism was. You know, I thought an alcoholic was somebody that was living in, under a fucking bridge in Cleveland, homeless, mm-hmm. you know, and it, that's not the case, you know. Right. An alcoholic is, you know, for me, you know, it's it's just... I don't have the ability to have one drink. If I go to a bar and I have one drink, there's many more to come. Like, I can't, I can't. And if I just have one drink and leave, I'm thinking about why I didn't drink more. Like, I just, I want that feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't drink for the taste. Mm -hmm. I drink to get fucked up, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And some people, why, why do some people, why can some people go to a bar, have one drink, and go home and be happy in that? But yet I go to a bar have one drink and I'm not happy like I'm like eh I want another one I want another one I want another one mm-hmm. that's the difference you know there's mm-hmm. there's a difference there and that, that's something in the brain of an alcoholic they they talk about it you know I read about it in the big book today the phenomenon of craving mm-hmm. you know the obsession you know that I was talking about earlier mm-hmm. you know I have an obsession to drug and drink yeah. you know and some people don't but the alcoholics and drug addicts do yeah. you know well, and once you get hooked on something like that, <clears throat> your brain starts to rewire. So you're no longer getting the ke- the positive chemicals that make you happy that once did. So we have these things called neurons in our brain, right? And you have in between that is the synapse where positive chemicals like dopamine and serotonin are, are when good things happen. So let's say you ate a, pi- a slice of pizza. Pizza tastes good and it's going to release some of that dopamine. But heroin, guess what that's going to do? That's going to project so much more serotonin and dopamine into that synapse, and that's where that euphoria comes from. And so the reward system in, its, in the brain is, is essentially reinforcing itself. Like, even though you know it's bad for you, or you know this, you, you, can't, you can't be doing this for the rest of your life, your brain can't stop that because yeah. you've already created that and that's where the withdrawals come from, right? So once you stop that, that serotonin, your brain's like, oh my God, where's that serotonin? Where's that feel good? It's not there anymore because you created a disconnect. The brain just knows brain. that it feels good and it wants to feel yes. good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty incredible how addiction works in our brain. It's the reward system, essentially, in our brain. Anything that we do that feels good, we do because it feels good. Makes you sense. wouldn't do it if, you, if it didn't right. feel good, right? right. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I mean, I don't know who likes the taste of alcohol, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, I mean. <laughs> it depends on who you're drinking, I guess. You know, yeah. there, there's some fancy drinks out there that taste pretty good. And before oh, yeah. you know it, you drink 10 of them and you're waking up naked. Yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what happens? Yeah. We're in a different oh, city yeah. somewhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Making that jump to heroin, though, like, what what are culminated to it? Because, I mean, you, you probably, you knew the effects going into it. You knew... I mean, how addictive it was and everything, and I'm sure you've seen people already fall to it. I mean, what what made what made you take that? I mean, that's a big step. Yeah. So so here's that's a good question. So, you know, when you're doing pills, pills are very expensive on the street, okay, and they get very hard to buy. Now, I was addicted to you know the the, the Percocets, and then I got into IR30s, which is a instant release Percocet 30 milligram pill. It's little, very strong, and those days where you go through, you do them, you know, for weeks on end, and then you can't get them anymore. And I mean, they're twenty dollars a pill. Oh wow! You know, so you you could spend you know three hundred a week. 
if you know. Damn. So then I was at a house one night, someone's house, I'm not gonna mention any names, and they're like, dude, this was twenty bucks, you know, a little bit of powder. And I'm like, Okay, let me try it. And I was off and running. And, it, and the price difference is what made me make the jump because it was so much more affordable. It was way easier to get. You can get it on <laughs> whenever you want. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. so much easier to get. Mm-hmm. It's just way more available. So yeah. I think that's what made me make the jump. And I think that's what makes a lot of people make the jump is they get prescribed all these pills throughout hospitals and they get hooked. And, and whether it's someone that actually really needs it, back problems or whatever it may be, you know, people get hooked on these pills and then doctors are like, okay, we can't prescribe these anymore to you. And then these people are stuck being addicted to these pills. So they're like, okay, well, I need something because I'm addicted. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make the jump to heroin. Yeah. I can get it at my neighbor's house. Right. You know. And on the flip of the side of that in some regard, but also on the same side of the coin, is our, our body builds up tolerance. <clears throat> so what two Percocets would have done for you before no longer is doing that for right. you anymore. Mm-hmm. So then you need three and four, yeah. and then the habit gets more expensive, yeah. and and then so forth and so forth. And yeah, so and same with heroin. No matter how strong heroin is, I mean, you become a, you, you know, like when I first started, you know, you spend twenty dollars and you're spent for the whole day, and then it was forty dollars, and then it was fifty dollars, and then it was like you can sniff, I, you know, you could, you know, sniff eighty dollars in a day, and it was like, you know, that's half a gram, and you know, spend eighty bucks, sniff half a gram. And then that becomes too expensive. So then, then I got introduced to needles, you know, and it was like, okay. And then, yeah. then it drops back down. So, so it's, you're spending all this money sniffing it. And then it's basically, now you can go back to spending $20 and shooting it. Mm-hmm. And then it, you just fucking, it's a vicious cycle, man. And, and, and once I started shooting it, man, that shit wasn't good at all. You know, <clears throat> that's when you really start, uh, your mind isn't working anymore. I mean, you're like, you know don't care about your job, don't care about your family, don't care about anybody because the feeling of being sick when you don't have it, your body is like, it's a terrible feeling. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, terrible. for sure. Yeah. So you just, you know, it's, I, it's hard to get out of it, you know? I mean, the statistics of, you know, when I was in rehab, there was a group of us, there was probably, I don't know, 20 people in there, and uh, the counselor was in the middle saying, 2% of you will stay sober. Or two of us. Maybe she said two of us. Yeah, I think she said two. two out of all the people in the room, she said two of you will stay sober. Okay. And, you know, I know people that, I mean, the whole time I've been sober, I probably know knew at least ten people that died. Yeah. From the rooms. People I've met, shook hands with, got to know, went golfing with them. You know, <clears throat> like my buddy Mike, you know, he came to a meeting one night. <clears throat> he was all screwed up. He had had two years before that. He, uh... You know, he was he was on opiates, could barely talk, and we were all like, "Man, you all right?" So we stayed after the meeting. We talked to him to like 11:30 at night. Got a call at seven in the morning, saying, "Hey, Mike's mom found him this morning on the ground, dead." Mm-hmm. And we were just with him eight hours before that. You know, wow. And it, it happens all the time, man. Yeah. And that that's that's the insanity of it. It's like we see <clears throat> this happening as alcoholics and drug addicts, but yet we still want to play with it. You right. know? <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. like. It's, it's insanity, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, it you know, that's one thing that through this relapse I did not want to touch. I didn't want to touch, have anything to do with opiates or drugs or anything. I just wanted to fucking drink, man. Right. You know, and, and eventually that w- could lead to drug, you know, drug addiction again because, you know, I can go out, although I was just drinking at my house, but one night I might wander out to the bar and be trashed and then 
see someone I hadn't seen in a while. Hey man, I got some coke, or I got this, I got that. And before I know it, I'm in the bathroom doing something, and then who knows what happens. Right. You know, it just happens that fast, mm -hmm. you know, so it's, I just got to stay away from it, all of it, you know. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. It is a vicious cycle. It's never-ending, too. I liked earlier when you said, too, I don't have a problem with drinking, I have a problem with thinking. <laughs> Well, it's it's said in the rooms a lot. You yeah, know? we don't have a we don't have a drinking problem. We have a thinking problem. And yeah. it's, it's very true. I mean, I, I suggest if anyone listening is struggling with alcohol or drug addiction, to go to a meeting, to buy a big book, to get someone to sponsor you, to work you through the big book, but more more so, if you get a big book, read the the first few pages. It's called the doctor's opinion and read that. I was actually going to bring my book in and read that, because, I mean, mm. that is a really good... What it, is it? it? It was written by Dr. Silkworth, who was an MD back in, like, the 1930s, who worked with alcohol, alcoholics and drug addicts, and basically stated throughout the whole, the whole doctor's opinion that everything he had ever tried, basically, had not worked. But then there was one man who came in, who was Bill Wilson, who was one of the founders of AA. Mm-hmm. And he had an idea about helping, talking to these guys about, you know, their problems. So it became, you know, basically one alcoholic helping another, and it just grew. Mm -hmm. And he said that in all of his years of practice, basically, that that was the only thing he'd ever seen worked. Mm -hmm. and, like and, a buddy system. Yeah. 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 I mean, all the psychiatric treatments, the shock <clears throat> treatments, the, the stuff they used to do, I mean, to, to try to cure alcoholism just always was pretty unsuccessful right mm -hmm. you know and the only mm -hmm. thing you know to change that was finding a god of your understanding something higher than you mm -hmm. that you can believe in and you know he basically sought work with his own two eyes i mean he talked about these two guys in this story about who, who he redeemed as hopeless and uh he said he saw them years later and they were totally different people Just on one of the lynching in and I find it helpful to, you know, the AA and our 12-step support groups definitely work for individuals. And I think therapy, too. You know, I am a therapist and I work with addiction uh, day in and day out. And so, um, you know, finding a, a smart recovery group in your area, too. Those are up and coming. Uh, finding a program at a, a mental health agency or... Uh, reaching out to NAMI, like I had mentioned before, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Uh, there are a million resources out there. Um, and so, you know, tr don't do this alone. You don't have to do this alone, and I encourage you not to do it alone because it's it's going to be, it would be way too difficult, I think, in my opinion, to do it alone. Um, while you're pondering that, no, I want you to... Uh, I have, an, I have another question for you. When you were working the initial 12 steps, like when you first had to do it, mm -hmm. what was the hardest step you think you had to work and why? The fifth step, um, making a moral inventory of yourself and became willing to make, or, uh, sorry, what is it? It's basically you make a, a um, I'm having a brain fart. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, you make a personal inventory of, of everybody you've wronged. Okay. Hold on a second. really wish I would have brought my big book up here. Um, I can't find it on my phone. Mm. 
So that's okay. what happens when you don't practice Alcoholics Anonymous. You have brain farts and forget everything you have memorized to a T. So basically, the doctor's opinion. I'll read a little bit of it because okay. it's interesting. Okay. Tell me what the fifth step is first. I had asked you that okay. before. So first step is uh, admitted we were powerless over alcohol and then our life had become unmanageable. Okay. Number two is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Number three is turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. Number four is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And then number five is admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So that was one of the hardest steps for me because four, you have to make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. You have to go through your whole life and think like what you ever did, mm -hmm. you know? And then five, you have to talk to somebody about it and get their perspective on it and where you were wrong in situations and that all leads to you do six and seven and eight and nine are making amends to these people you know people right. that you had harmed right. and five and probably making the amends to the people were probably the hardest steps because you have to go you know i don't remember but pretty sure i made amends to you mom dad cheyenne mm -hmm. you know you have to go to these people face to face you mm -hmm. know and say hey look man i was wrong for what i did and some of the amends go well some of them, they say, you know, get the fuck out of my face, yeah. you know? Like, wow. there's still there's still some amends that I have to make, like Jason, you know, for example. You know, right. I've wrote letters to him. Um, he knows, you know. I've, I've kind of talked to him a little bit here and there, but, you know, he's, he's not, he's not ready. You know, he's not ready, and that's yeah. just something I have to pray on, you mm -hmm. know? I remember you coming to me about that. We mm -hmm. were in the Fairmont house in the front room on the couch. Yeah. You come up and talk to me. And I thought when you initially <laughs> called me Thursday, I thought you were literally reworking the steps. Uh, well, I thought that's what you were doing when you said, I'm making my rounds. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then you told me that Surprise, you surprise, motherfucker. <laughs> 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 no, so, so basically, you know, the thing is, you know, I went to Chester Men's last night, which is a great men's meeting. And uh, I didn't lose those eight years of sobriety. You know what I mean? Right. Mm -hmm. I had a slip up. And we as alcoholics... You know, me, that's what we do. We mm -hmm. fuck up. When we don't do what we're supposed to do, when we don't wake up every day and pray and ask for help, call somebody, talk some, to someone sober, go to a meeting, shit gets dark and you can drink. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's guys that have had 25 years go out and drink. You know, some of them make it back, some of them don't. You know? Yeah. Um, that fifth step, who did you talk to? Who uh, did you give a friend of mine named Jim. Okay. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Katie's dad. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. okay. I just, I don't know. I've, you know well, it's anonymous, yeah. Right. So I want to keep it that um, way. But he I wouldn't do care, know. though. I do know but, who he is, though. Um, great person. Now, you know, Ben's my sponsor, which his sponsor's Jim. Okay. So we got a great uh, grandfather sponsor, which is really good. Right. Um, so let me see here. So why was working that fifth step the hardest for you? Because um, you're basically talking to a stranger about your whole life, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're literally diving into your whole life, like everything you've ever did wrong, every person you've ever hurt, why you hurt them, um, you know, women you had, you know, you do, you know, sex inventory, uh, 
you know everything if you do if you have a good sponsor and you really do a really good fourth step i mean you dive into every aspect of your life and when you you know at that time in my life when i was able to talk to someone about all that you know let all that out you know like i left feeling like the monkey was off the back yeah you know what i mean like i felt so good like i had never told anybody any of that stuff right and uh so yeah, it was just hard talking to of a stranger course. about it. You yeah, know? yeah. Talking to a stranger about your life. And and it is hard. And you know, as the kind of the, the person on the other side, right? I'm not an, a sponsor, but I'm a therapist. I have people come into my room and be as vulnerable and talk to me about stuff yeah. they've never told anybody else. Yeah. So I can I can see where your uncomfortability and vulnerability comes from. I do still encourage though anybody. To, to ask for help it's okay and confidentiality and anonymity is super important within the work that we do so I'm not going to go and tell the next person everything that's happened for you right. and I'm sure Jim you know was very anonymous oh yeah I'm sure he kept yeah. that all to himself Absolutely. and that's, that's the point that's what you have to do right that's the point but this is the uh, doctor's opinion I'll read you a uh... The first paragraph, I mean, he, he wrote a couple pages, but I'll read his first uh, opening. It says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern... I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be extreme medical importance. Because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group, they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Very truly yours, William D. Silksworth, MD. Mm. I mean, that's strong, man. Yeah. That's a really strong... Uh, I mean, and, and there's there's way more. And basically he talks about two men he had worked on and redeemed as like legit hopeless alcoholics that he could not help. And they got involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and... The one guy he talked about, he didn't even he he met him like two years later, and didn't even realize it was the same guy. Like that's how much he had changed. Wow! And it, it's it's pretty wow. cool. Yeah, I mean that powerful. is that's a powerful opening. I mean it's not the first pages of the book, but sponsoring guys and helping out guys that's the first thing that I ever had him do was read the doctor's opinion because mm-hmm. if that doesn't convince you that there's something in these rooms, mm-hmm. you right? Know, I mean, are you a sponsor to anybody? Not yet. Okay. I have been. Okay. You know, but yeah. uh, I called a new guy today. Actually, I'm on my way home from work and uh, just seeing how he was doing. But 
<laughs> I can be if someone asks me. You sure. know, just because you know I did have eight years, I know how it works. You right. Know, it's, right. Uh, you know, and that's how the system works. You know, I have a sponsor. I can sponsor somebody. How long? How long? That you? How long does it take for you to become a sponsor? I guess. So basically, you have to know how to work through the twelve steps. Okay. So you work through the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with your sponsor, and you're able to do that. Then you can sponsor other guys. Okay. As long as is you were showed the way on how to you know live the twelve steps in your life, then if you're able to teach them, then you should you be carrying on. You should it. be carrying yeah. it on because that's how it works, man. Yeah. You, you, the one saying in AA that's that's one of the most important I think I've ever heard was you got to give it away to keep it. And it's, it's true. I mean, you can't just go to meetings and, and not help other guys. I see it all the time. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I know guys that have 30-some years sobriety, and they're just not happy. They're not, you know, they're like, oh, hey, how you doing? You know, it's like, I want that, that guy that has a year sobriety that's happy, joyous, and free, and like, yeah, man, I'm doing great, and I'm helping guys. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Those are the guys that, you know. Have a good chance to stand sober, right? You know, yeah, it's, no, that makes sense. <clears throat> they support, yeah, right. right. Time, you know, when I relapse, I, I got a hold of one of my good friends, and he said, Time is the shittiest way to measure sobriety because it is. Because, like I was just saying, you could have 30 years and be the un- most unhappy person in the world, but yeah, you can have six months and have a true <clears throat> understanding of this book and the steps and have worked the steps, and your life could be great. So, time is. It's whatever, you know. It's like, yeah. okay, yeah, you got thirty years. How happy are you? Right. You know, yeah. don't get me wrong. There's thirty guys. I know, good friend of mine, Ron. He's got thirty-two years. I think thirty-two years. He's one of the happiest dudes I've ever met. You know what I mean? There is guys out there, but he carries the message. He helps guys. He goes to meetings. He does leads. You know, it's it's, you know, yeah. time is, it's whatever. Yeah. You know? Time is perspective too, for the yeah. most part. But I know a guy too who has a. As a sponsor, and a sponsor pretty much tells him what he's gonna do. Yeah, you know, I'll be like, you want to lead? He's like, not really. Well, you're leading on Thursday. Yeah, that's how and he it tells works. him to do it. That's, he's like, oh, he's got okay. a good sponsor. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's got a good sponsor. I really appreciate that that's, relationship. That's, that's the kind of sponsor you want. You want someone with a finger in your chest. Yeah. You know, like, you want what I have, then you're gonna do what I did to get it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and that's that's hit that guy's sponsor probably got that done to him because mm-hmm. back in the day, man, I mean, they were hardcore. Like, you know. AA was like, you know, I, I know some old timers that are in the program, man, and they're they're they'll tell you how it is, and that's <laughs> some people don't like to hear it. I mean, we don't like to hear it as alcoholics, you know. It's like you're gonna tell me what to do, you know? Right. Who the fuck do you think you are? Right. But that's what needs to be done sometimes. Right. right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that guidance, because yeah. you lack so much guidance at some point, whatever that looked like for you, that and structure in your life yeah. you were using all the time. There was no structure. There yeah. was no guidance. Like, I'm going to do what the fuck I want, and that's it. Yeah. Well, and it's like, you know, when I walked into my first meeting ever, I was like, I don't fucking belong here. You know, like, I was like, it's all these stupid. people, I was like, all these people are happy, dude. Yeah. There's no way these people are sober. You know, it's like, that was my first thought. Like, one of the first guys I saw was Jim, and this dude always has a smile on his face, man. He's just a happy, joyous dude, man. Happy life, happy wife, happy daughter, happy grandchildren. Just a great dude. And that was the first guy I saw. And I was just like, this is fucking weird, dude. Like, I thought it was like a cult, dude. Like, <laughs> we're doing the our, our father after the meetings. And I'm like, nah, this isn't for me. But when I hit my bottom, man, and I had nowhere else to go, I had tried getting sober myself. I had tried rehabs. I had tried drying out in jails. I knew my way wasn't working, man. So I had to change it. And I gave it a shot, man. And it 
changed my life. Yeah. I'm you sure know? you left that first meeting with like sick numbers. Oh yeah, yeah. These are this is my first AA book. These are all the first numbers I ever got. He's dead. He's dead. This is my first sponsor ever. He lives in Florida. He's dead. Wow. That was my probation officer in Cleveland. <laughs> that was the rehab. Was it really? Yeah. <laughs> she called she she was calling me like two, three years ago, for three years before that, she called me every day on my birthday. Wow. And she had it in her thing. She's just calling to is see how I was doing. Is she sober, too? Or she's I don't know. Okay. I don't know. She's just calling to check up on you? Yeah, just seeing how I was cool. doing. Yeah. And she always loved hearing that I was doing good, but that was the rehab facility I was in. And that was another guy that's in the program who went back out after 15 years. So the statistics there. I mean, he, he passed away sober. He passed away sober. Um. They were just old, you know. Yeah. They passed away. Right, right. But yeah, those were the first numbers I ever got in the program, man. And that that's about reaching out, man. You know, mm -hmm. like I signed a book last night for some guy that was new, you know. I mean it's just these numbers, man, like these are guys that would have probably answered the phone any night of the day besides that. But these are people that would probably answer the phone any night of the day if I needed <clears> help. <throat> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. And these are all the meetings I ever led. You get you know, every time you lead a meeting you get a certificate and everybody that was at the meeting, attended that meeting, signs it, leaves you comments. But I mean, I'd led. Oh, that's cool. I'd led quite a few meetings, man. I mean, yeah. I did a lot, and the the one meeting I led was out in Warren, and there was like probably two hundred people there. Oh shit! Yeah. So what wow. Noah is showing right now is certificates of appreciation and stuff for um, his being recognized as as somebody who uh, was an avid member. Yeah, you know, every yeah, and every meeting. meeting every meeting you led, they stamp it. So that was right. at Troy. You know, this one wasn't stamped, so someone screwed up. That's what we do. Fucked <laughs> 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 up. But you know, Lynnhurst and you know Burton Maple Leaf. Burton Maple Leaf did that one a couple times. Uh, Bainbridge Saturday. Uh, someone fucked up again. <laughs> this one was a big one. Where was this one at? Shard and Tuesday. This was my first lead. This is the one you That's guys were. That's the one at. I went to. Yeah. So what does it mean to lead? Basically, you stand up, you know, you, you, uh, you're the story of the meeting. So there's lead meetings, there's discussion meetings. Um, the lead meetings are there's always a guest speaker. So, you know, the, the meeting sits down and, and you stand up and tell your whole story okay. in front of everyone. You okay. know, and it's, yeah. uh, it's pretty cool, man. It's a humbling experience. And yeah. it's... Uh, and it's crazy too, like. And just you can really help out somebody, someone right. in the crowd that's hurting, that's that's in pain, man, that yeah. needs to hear something that you have to say. If if I helped one person out of all these people, I did my job. Right, exactly. You know I mean? Yeah, that's no, cool. And I that's probably cool. recognize at least a third of these names on here. Yeah. From people I went to, we went to school with. From yeah. people. I remember uh, Eric Birch was there because uh, Pat, Eric. Eric's dad was chairing that night. He's mm -hmm. the one that asked me to lead that. Right. Eric was there. Dane was there. He got arrested in the parking lot after. Remember? I know. I was. Got I was charge. next to the car that they. Yeah. Pulled, the cop car pulled behind. I'm like, oh my god, what is going on? And I realized yeah. what was happening. Kyle Chapman and his cool. dad were there. Yeah. 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 There was a bunch mm -hmm. of people there, man. It's it was it was cool. It was uh, it was awesome. Yeah. So this next question, I'm not necessarily sure. Um, it, it's my. Well, I have two more questions, but this question and it might take some thinking, but what do you, th and it's probably one of the most vulnerable questions I could ask you right now. Okay. What do you think could have been a sole contributing factor to your addiction? 
Like, I, I know the picking up and using out of curiosity and getting addicted in that way. But what what kept that going for you? Was there was there something that happened? Was there trauma? Was there... What happened that made you want to just be fucked up all the time? I think that's, that's a good question, for one. And I hear a lot in the rooms, you know, when, when people lead or when, I, when I'd lead meetings, I, I would say, you know, people would... A lot of people, when they lead, they, they say, I don't know why I was an alcoholic. I don't know. You know, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what separates me from a normal drinker or a normal, normal person. You know, like, there's something in the brain, a chemical imbalance somewhere. And, you know, it's... <clears throat> I love when the people say, you know, addictions and alcoholism is not a disease. Because it 100% is a disease. There mm-hmm. is something in the brain that happens, you know, and why I would keep it going for so long... I don't know. Yeah. I wanted it, you know, and and why did I want it and someone yeah. else didn't, you well, know? Yeah, and I think it goes back to some regard, you know, that reward system that I was talking about before. It's not like you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm going to do heroin today. Yeah. Right? It's a, a tr- it's essentially a, a, a train, a domino a process, effect. Almost, yeah, yeah, right. <clears throat> a domino effect where, you know, the alcohol wasn't good enough. The two Percocet you were taking wasn't good enough. Yeah. And the next thing you Eventually, know, none of it's ever good enough. Right. You know, eventually it comes to that. But, you know, you, you gotta think. There's people that grow up in awesome households. Mm-hmm. Go to church every day. I know them. I know people like this that, right. are, that are sober today. You know, they, they grew up with a structured house. You know, like, you know, great grades, went to college, very successful people, and they can't put down the drink. They can't put down the drugs. I mean, I've met heart surgeons. I've met lawyers. I golf with lawyers. I golf with doctors. You know what I mean? All alcoholics. You know, guys that are totally different than the household I grew up in. You know, mm-hmm. what we grew up in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, we were introduced to alcohol and, and drugs at a very young age. You know, mm-hmm. mom and dad always having parties at the house. And, you know, we got introduced to it at a young age. But is that why I'm an alcoholic? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You know, because there's... Why, why, why are there people that grow up in households totally different than that? Why are right. they alcoholics, why are too? Why are they alcoholics, too? Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah. It's, uh, yeah. There's just something in our brains that mm-hmm. is different. Yeah, and I, I don't, you know, I ask that because I guess I never really asked you that before, but I, I know that there's really no sole contributing factor. Yeah. It's more of like this conglomeration of all these dynamic risk factors that go into why we become the people that we are. Right. We, we had a great life. Yeah. I mean, she, we had a great life, dude. I mean, mom and dad always, they always worked. They always got us what we wanted. I mean, we were, we had a good, good life. I mean, we didn't have the best house or, but we always had friends over. We always did what we pretty much wanted to do. We fucking wiped out bikes. We fucking, you know, did whatever we wanted to do. Had, had Christmases every year. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like we ever had bad, you know, childhoods. Mm-hmm. But I know people that had it way worse. And right. they're okay. Yeah. You know? Well, trauma is perspective, too. So we mm-hmm. have to keep that in mind, you know, when we're looking at trauma and itself and the things that we experience in life. Like, what is traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you. Right. Might not be traumatic for Ryan and so forth. And I think that that could be, you know, I think it's a foundation for understanding that perspective, that tra- that trauma is perspective. Yeah. It's on a spectrum. We can't, you know, like Corey, for example, he turned out to be a pretty decent person. And I can't say that, you know, he lived a, a good life. Right. He, he had some sig- significant trauma. Right. Um and he was, you know, I, sure he dabbled in, in drugs and stuff in his day, but he never really got hooked on anything. 
but yeah, it's it's you know all these dynamic risk factors that it, that play a role in who we become and how our brains want to be when we're you know finally functioning adults. And um, so my final question, I think, could be a good way to uh, sort of, I, I guess, end in some way is what piece of advice would you give to the next person who is trying to s- seek recovery or be in recovery? What's the best piece of advice? If you could give them one thing, one thing off the top of your head. I would say get to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or, or NA, um, whatever your choice of. It, whether it be drugs or alcohol, um, I mean, alco- Al- Alcoholics Anonymous is pretty open to drugs nowadays. I mean, mm-hmm. it's uh, in the book they talk about drugs, and you know, I always say, what would Bill and Bob do? You know, would they turn a drug addict away back in the 1930s when AA started? I highly doubt it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they would have helped them out. Right. So I would suggest definitely getting to a meeting and getting a sponsor, and you know. Get someone that could really work you through this book and and change your life because that's the only thing I've ever seen to work for anybody. Mm-hmm. So you know it, it's pretty simple. It's yeah. <laughs> you know it's simple, but it's hard for us. You know. Yeah, of course. But yeah, definitely go to a meeting. Okay. Get to a meeting and and uh, you'll you'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it, you'll life will life will work out if you really take it seriously mm-hmm. in AA. Okay. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit about. When I was in sobriety, I really got big into golf. Like, eight years ago, I was happy if I shot 89. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, sweet, dude. Hell yeah. (laughs) You know? So, I got addicted to golf. Like, hardcore. Like, I was playing, like, four or five times a week. I was going to the range. I was like, you know, my grandpa played on the tour. Like, I really want to be, like, my grandpa. Yeah, did you golf before... A little bit, a little bit. Like, I I grew up, you know, my dad, you know, growing up, I'd go to the golf course with him, but, I mean, it was every once in a while, you know, like, we might play once a week on the weekend Mm -hmm, or something, mm -hmm. and, you know, like, I was happy if I shot, you know, growing up, like, if I broke 100, dude, I was, like, sweet. Right. But when I got sober, man, and started golfing with sober guys, that was some of the best times I ever had in sobriety, was golfing with sober guys, and that gave me something in my, you know, my sobriety to strive for, like, I wanted to be better. So I went from, like, being happy if I shot 90 to being, you know, a scratch player. You know what I mean? And, like, I put golf before sobriety. And in the long run, you know, I stopped going to meetings because, like, you know, I'm not going to go to that meeting tonight. I'm going to go out and play a fucking 18 holes, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they say everything you put before sobriety you will lose. And, you know, it's true. You know, so it's like. I put golf before sobriety, and, you know, it, it's not that I was losing golf, but I was, you know, I was losing sobriety, and it became way more important in my life than anything. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, me and Jen, you know, I, I, I was spending a lot of time away from my wife, and, you know, on the days I wasn't golfing, I was going to meetings, and there was just never any time for my wife, you mm-hmm. know, and it caused problems, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, this time around, you know, I told her, and you know other guys in the rooms like you know maybe it's it, it's for sure me being selfish like i have to learn how to balance i have to learn how to maybe not golf four times a week like maybe i can't go pro you know i mean maybe that's not meant for me i just you know maybe i have to only golf twice a week go to two meetings a week and give jen three days a week you know I'll give my wife three days a week and you know we 
it, it just basically I put golf first, and uh, I love the game. I'm never going to give it up. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just no way in hell I'm giving it up. But um, well, a lot of the people that I work with in addiction is we often it, we often find more than not that people trade one addiction for another. Yeah. Right. So they start with alcohol. Doesn't you know end there? You put down alcohol. Pick up this. Put down that. Pick up porn. Put down that. Pick up golf. Whatever you name it. You trade it. Yeah. It's that reward system that trying to, you know, fill that void. When, when when I told my sponsor about this the other day, he said something to me that really stuck with me. He's like, you know, I told him, I was like, man, I just wanted to be pro in golf. Like, you know, one of the pros, the pro at the place I work is played on the tour. I mean, very good player. And his assistants, I've sh- I shoot the same scores as two of his assistants like you know like right. I, I could be there you yeah. know what I mean like if I put in the time and I had the time to do it I could be there but um I, I lost my train of thought um, you, you had mentioned something your sponsor said the other day that really stuck out yes. to you so he said oh yeah he said he's I was just like I was telling him you know I really want to be good at golf and I, I uh, you know I someday want to play in you know in, in bigger tournaments and do this and that and he's like well he looked at me and he's like do you want to be a good golfer that's happy or do you want to be a really good golfer that's a fucking asshole and a drunk? And I was like, wow. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, if, I, if I'm going to put all the time into golf and not sobriety, then I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to ruin my marriage. You know, I'm going mm-hmm. to probably pick up. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me, man. It was yeah. just like, you know, I can't have it all. You know? Right. And I, I realize that now. And you it's just like, choose, basically. Yeah, yeah. I just got to balance, man. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's it's unfortunate this year because I, I, every year for the last four years, I went on this Bay trip down to West Virginia with 75 AA guys. And you have to have, you know, they require your sobriety. And, you know, for the most part, there's a couple situations where guys went with like nine months sober. But, um, you know, I had to call the guy that runs it saying that I relapsed because part of it is when you're there, we have a gratitude meeting and he stands up and he says, now if anybody drinks you know, you're not allowed back next year. You know, you have to get on the waiting list again. You know, he just reminds us, you know, that those are the rules. You know, right. if you drink. So I had to call him and say, hey, look, Tom, I, you know, I fucked up. I went back out. I'm just being honest with you. I know the rules of Ogle Bay, but that's just something I'm going to miss this year from my actions. But I don't care because mm-hmm. for the longest time, that's why for that whole month I drank, I didn't want to tell anybody because I did not want to miss that trip. That was one thing in my mind. Like, I was like, dude, I can't tell anybody. I have to go on that trip. Like, it's just like three days of golf and 36 holes a day. Ugh. You know, and it, it's just on some of the sweetest courses you can ever think of. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a great time, man. And uh, I'm going to miss it. But at the same time, like, I'm way better off just doing me right now. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's yeah. there's so many more. There's so much more important things to, yeah. to deal with right now. And, mm-hmm. and. Well, it's kind of a reevaluating your value system. What is it that you do want out of life? If you didn't have a wife and golf was the thing that you wanted to do and you could do it sober and happy, fine. Yeah. But you have a wife and right. you have different parts of your life that you have to incorporate into right. you somehow. Yeah. So it's about reevaluating those. And yeah. we, we all do that, I think, in some way. We forget. Yeah. We forget. Yeah, because like then I then I retaliated to, to Ben about you know I was like, you know I was like well I could be a really good golfer and be really happy too, but where's my marriage at? 
you know, like I could go to a million meetings and I, you know, I could go to three meetings a week and golf four nights a week because in order to, in order to break a five handicap, you have to play four times a week at least. Okay. And, and probably one of those times you have to be hitting balls at a range. Like you have to be a good ball striker, good putter, good chipper, good, good, you know, driver. And, uh, I just, I couldn't have it all. You know, I can't, I can't play four times a week anymore and go to meetings and have a marriage. I just can't do it, you know? And it's, uh, it's something I have to accept. And, and you know, I just got to work on my sobriety and, you know, roll with it and see what happens, you know? It's just, I'm still going to golf. <laughs> I'm still going to golf. I have to have something positive in my life, you know, other than my wife. I mean, Jenna's been, she's been there for me. She really has. I mean, we've had some ups and downs and it's been tough at times, but, you know, we do love each other. And, uh, you know, for the most part, she's, I mean... Dude, I, like, the first, in our first year, dude, I was getting taken to jail in front of her. Or no, actually, oh, wow. I wasn't in front of her. I was, I, I, I was lying to her, and uh, my PO called saying, hey, you have to come in for a drug test. Mrs. Woods, that's in my book. She's like, you have to come in for a drug test. And I'm like, okay. And I, I knew I was screwed. And, you know, I got taken to jail, and I'm calling Jen. I think we were only together for, like, five or six months. I'm calling her from Kyle County Jail, you know, like... And she stuck with me, man. Yeah. You know? She stuck yeah. with me. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah, that's she fair. stuck that's with definitely me. Cool. She and, stuck with you. Yeah, and then and then that from that point on, man, I really got so I got sober, took it seriously. And uh you know, I was on intense tense probation in Cuyahoga County. I had to go to court like every two weeks. I had to drop urine every you know, randomly every Was you this know, after cats? Or before cats? After. It was drug court. I believe it was after. Okay. Yeah, drug court in Cuyahoga County. Okay. It was cats. Community Assessment and Treatment Services. It's basically it's, a halfway house in Cleveland. Yeah, it's, mm. a, so. it's an inpatient halfway house, depending yeah. on what you're there I mean, for. Pretty much everybody... Kind of, kind of like the lake house up here in Yeah, Hainesville or exactly the same thing. And, and like, I was, like, one of the only ones in there that wasn't from prison. You know, a lot of the guys came from there. I mean, mm-hmm. dude, their stories were crazy. Like, armed robbery, gang, gang, <laughs> gang members with tattooed faces and stuff. Like, and the only thing that I related to them with was drugs and alcohol and basketball. <laughs> that's all we did dude we played basketball and I got tight with some of the craziest dudes you could think of like dudes that murdered people wow yeah. you know wow like legit murdered people there was one dude there from Puerto Rico man and he had a tattooed face like Mike Tyson and dude I'll never forget dude he talked about the color of brains that's and, that's fucked yeah like, and, um, yeah, and I'll never forget that because he asked me for a cigarette and this one this one other dude was talking about how he's shooting he's just young punk dude and this this Puerto Rican shut his ass right up. He's like, do you even know the fucking color of brains? Blah, blah, blah. And he just like, like he was a real fucking deal, dude. And like, Damn. this is the dude real I'm gangster. sleeping with. You know, yeah. like, sleeping in the same fucking room oh, with man. man. I'm like, yeah. holy shit, dude. Like, yeah. straight up gangster, man. Jeez. Uh, but, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was good, man. Rehabs, ride. yeah, rehabs were, were good, but it all comes down to what you do when you get out of rehab. Yeah. I mean, you can go to jail for a year straight and get out and, Go right back to where you were at. Well, you your know. stage of change, too. I imagine when you were in the heart of your addiction, you didn't want to get sober. Right. So, you never want to. You know? Right. When you, right. When you need it and you have to have it to, right. to survive and to feel good. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. What was your rock bottom? Rock bottom. I'd say when I got in my last OVI in Mayfield, I crashed into that lady. Yep. I blacked out at the wheel, 
Well, some some guy had me on video on 90 going through four lanes of traffic. High uh, as a kite. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, falling asleep at the wheel. I was driving from right end on 90, the right lane, all the way into the grass. Oh, back immediate. across highways, missing cars, semis, everything. And this guy had me on video the whole time. And uh, I got off on 322 in Mayfield. And right there at the Walmart that's getting closed down. Um, right there in Mayfield. And uh, crashing into some lady. Fell asleep at the wheel and rear-ended her. Mm -hmm. And we pulled into Walmart. I ditched a bunch of shit. I'm like, oh shit, dude. Ditched everything I had. And this kid comes pulling up behind me, and so did the cops. And he's like, oh, I got a video of him. I got video of him. You know, he was he was swerving all over he the place. He followed you all the way? Oh, yeah. He oh, followed me wow. the whole way. Wow. And, he was uh, your saving fucking angel, dude. Yeah. Guardian angel yeah, right there. Yeah, he was. And uh, they arrested me, took me to Lynnhurst Jail, and I called Mom, and she was just, she was just like, I was like, she's like, what happened? I said, I'm in jail. And she was just fucking pissed. Yeah. And uh, I could just hear the, the soul in her just leave. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I went into the jail cell, and Mom told me she was coming. And uh, she said she was going to come pick me up. She's like, you know, she's like, I'm sick of this fucking shit, blah, blah, blah. She's like, I'll see you in a little bit. And uh, that night, um, dude, it was like two hours go by and I'm like where the fuck is mom dude like I'm, dude they treat me like a rat in there cause I was not happy with the cops that arrested me I mean I was being a total douche man I was yeah. like fuck you fuck you you're a piece right. of fucking shit yeah just being a belligerent asshole and uh the cop dude they didn't give me any blankets they didn't give me they gave me just my you know the jumpsuits and they didn't give me any blankets so I'm sitting in this cell dude and uh right before he gave me my uh jumpsuit I put my jumpsuit on outside the cell, and he's like, all right, you got to go back in the cell and wait for your mom. And he slams the door, and he said, oh, by the way, your mom ain't coming. He, oh. She had called back and say, you know, said she's not coming to pick me up, oh, leave him in there. My. And, dude, I fucking dropped to my knees, dude. Like, it just felt like my knees gave out, and I just dropped to my knees, and I'm just sitting there fucking crying, and I'm just looking at the walls around me, and I'm just like, man, like, this is about as good as my fucking life's going to get, dude, if I don't change yeah. something. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I'm lucky I didn't kill anybody. You know, and at that time, you know, I didn't realize the extent of how I was driving, but uh, the judge watched it in court, and uh, she explained it to me. She, I think she asked, if I remember right, if, she, if I wanted to watch it, and I said, no, I don't want to watch it, because I knew it was probably fucked up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she's like, you were swerving through all the lanes on 90 East, coming towards Mayfield. And I was just like, I know. You know, I'm yeah. sorry yeah. <laughs> for yeah. what I did. Mm -hmm. That was probably my bottom, though, that, that night in that jail cell when yeah. uh, I dropped to my knees. I mean, I had never dropped to my knees like that before. I mean, you know, I just felt like my knees gave out. Like, I, right. and I just, I just knew, like, you there were was, tired, dude. Yeah, I was you just tired, tired. Uh, tired of fighting it, man. And I just, uh, mm -hmm. that was when I got back into the rooms, I believe. Believe I just my my times are all screwed up. Man. I think that's correct because I don't Cheyenne, know because I wasn't with Jen at that time. Or wait, maybe there was a point in time I think you and I was Jen with Jen had. I was with Jen because that night I got the DUI in Mayfield. I had just started at Radix. That was the first day I started at Radix, mm. and and I had to call the guy that didn't even know me, telling him I was in jail because I wanted to keep my job. And he said, "Well, if you can get here this day." you know you have a job still and i had to get rides from casey 
for, right. you know, because my that. license was suspended for a year. I had yellow plates, and, right. you know, I'd get my, you know, for six months, actually, and then they gave me work privileges. But I had to get a ride to work, and I made it, and he kept, he let me, this guy didn't even know me, let me keep my job, you know, That's and cool. I stayed, I stayed yeah. with him for five or six years, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, I remember around that time, too, because April of, uh, you know, it's the same, it all kind of lines. Cheyenne has Aurora in, yeah. in March. You got sober in April, and then I met Corey in June. Right. So, eight years. Well, I remember when I you met remember. Corey, me and Jen were, were split, because I went to Geneva with you guys, right. and I was by myself, and right. I was hurting. right. And, and and that was another crazy time. That was, was the first time Corey met you. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, remember, I remember we were camping. We were camping out on the strip that night. Yeah. We were like over on the strip. Right. And Corey showed up. And I remember the one, uh, I wanted to drink so bad that I night. I know you did. And, and I went to, I actually went to a bar and went up to the, the, uh, the bar. And I was ordering a drink. And she's like, can I see your ID? And I pulled it out, and my ID wasn't in my wallet. I was like, where the fuck's my ID? Yeah. You know? And I I don't know. I still, to this day, don't know where it was. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't You got remember. it taken away. Yeah. Because you I, couldn't drive. Right, right. That's you what it was. You got it confiscated. And I didn't even think about it. Like, I don't even They wouldn't even, ID. it was at the cove. They wouldn't even let you into the cove. Maybe that's we what it was. The guy standing at the door. But that was a blessing, dude. Right. Like, that yeah. was a blessing sure. in my life. Like, dude, you don't need to go in there. You don't have an yeah. ID. You can't that go in there. Sign. So, blah, blah, blah. So, another sign was weird. So, this this past relapse, um, the first, after the first day I drank, the next day, I was fixing my driveway because we have asphalt grindings, and I was the, during the, the winter the plow brings them all oh, yeah. to the top of the Racks driveway. Them. Yeah, puts potholes in the driveway, and I'm filling them in, and I'm digging. I have a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and I'm digging all this asphalt grindings into this wheelbarrow, and I hear this tink, so I like put it in the wheelbarrow, and I'm like fluffing around. It's a fucking AA coin. What? With Bill Bill Wilson and Doctor Bob on it, and I. I still don't know where it came from because I keep all my coins in a purse. Like I have a like a little like man purse that I keep all my coins that I ever had in AA. And usually the only ones I ever got was one month sobriety, two months, three months, four months, all the way up to a year. Then two year, three year, four year, five year, six year, seven year. And this one did not have a year on it. It, it didn't have any time on it. It just had Bill Wilson's face and Doctor Bob, and it says "To thy own self be true." And I was like sitting in my fucking driveway just looking at this thing like where did this come from wow. dude? like it was wow. so weird dude. yeah that's wild it was so weird and I, and I don't i asked jen i'm like jen do you know where this came from like did the kids grab it like but even if they did it's like i don't ever remember getting this coin right like i don't know where it came from right i told that story the other night dude at the meeting and i was just like that was another sign man yeah, you know? yeah. like it's just like it's no coincidence man it's like yeah. i belong in AA, you yeah. know right. like, yeah. i belong in the sobriety yeah. <laughs> there's you. no doubt man because i mean my way doesn't work and you know it's it's unfortunate but alcoholism and drug addiction kills man yeah. you know it, yeah. did you before you hit rock bottom did you try a beforehand I did, yeah. The first okay. time I ever went to AA was like 2011. It was court ordered. That was after my first DUI with Mike and yeah. Eric Bridge when I flipped mm-hmm. my car. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to go court ordered, and you know I had to go to Camp Burton for three days, and uh, I was court ordered like three meetings a week or something. And that was when I first got introduced to AA. And at the time, I was working for my cousin, so I was working like second shift when I was working for Ross pressure washing mm-hmm. and stuff. I was working like weird hours, so I was only able to go to like morning meetings. So I started going to this one meeting in South Russell that happens Monday through Sunday, I believe. I know it's Monday through Friday, but it's 10 o'clock every day. So I started going to that meeting, 
And, uh, dude, when I first went in, like, they were talking about sponsorship, and I stood up because I had to get a sponsor. The courts required me to get a sponsor. And I asked, this is how how out of it I was with the Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I was like, I need a sponsor, and I just need to know how much it costs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's how out of it I was and didn't didn't realize how Alcoholics Anonymous work. And it was funny because some of the guys chuckled, and, and uh, the one guy in here, uh, Fred, right there, He's like, he comes up to me and gives me his number and he said, call me. And he said, I want you to read a page a day, call me the next day and tell me what you read. So I did that. We met, we met, uh, some, a couple nights out of the week, talked about the book. We met at Panera Bread in Bainbridge, went over the book and stuff. And it was just, that's, that's when I was introduced to AA and how much I did not know about it. 2011. Right. You know, like I was just so, so blind to it. And like, when I see a newcomer coming to the rooms, man, when I see a newcomer coming to the rooms and if they've never been to a meeting, I know exactly how they feel. Like it's, it's, it's a lot to take in at first, you know, you see all these guys praying and this and that. And it's like, it turns a lot of people away. You know, a lot of people come in there and there's a chapter in this book, we agnostics, you know, people that are, you know, people that don't believe in God and, Mm -hmm. you know, don't have any understanding of a higher power doesn't matter it's it's whatever you believe in whatever you want to pray to mm-hmm. that's it that's you know it. there's no there's no god or anything pushed there's no religion whatsoever pushed in these rooms right so until you figure that out and find that out and stick around a while you know then you would understand right right well man i appreciate you coming in today uh ryan and joe do you guys have any questions Right now? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I know. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a lot to sort of in, take in and process. So, like, and... We went to school with you. Like, right. I mean, yeah. I knew you through school. And, yeah. I mean, I just figured you smoked weed in school, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, but like you said before, like, alcoholics and addicts, you're good at hiding it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean. Yeah. I would like to make a comment. Yeah. Uh, you were always a good dude. You know, I, I always thought you were a great dude. It made me real happy to find out that you cleaned up and everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. Sure yeah. did. I appreciate that. Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good dudes, man. When when Kyle Chapman came into the rooms, you know? I mean, you guys oh, had yeah. a party with him and knew how much he oh, drank. Yeah. I oh, watched yeah. that kid come in and he got it. Like, he, he got, I think he's still sober. He doesn't go to meetings. And I don't recommend that at all because yeah. I mean, you know, when life's going good, that's cool. You know, when I did my first lead, that was that Chardon was supposed to be my first lead, but the week before that, I was at Troy, which is my home group, and the lead didn't show up. So Dave stood up and he's like, "Hey, no, you worked the steps, didn't you?" And I'm like, "Yeah." He's like, "You're leading tonight." And I'm like, <laughs> "Okay." I'm like, "Oh shit," you know. <laughs> so so when I got done with my lead, this guy Dave stood up, and I'll never forget the comment he made. He said, "Noah." Your life is going to get extremely good, which was true. It got really good. He's like, if you do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and you practice these in your daily life, your life will get good. But when your life gets bad, what are you going to do? And that just, like, hit me, man. Like, when I relapsed this past, like, I just, I thought about that a lot. And I was just like, you know, my life was bad, and what did I do? I fucking drank Mm -hmm. because I was not doing what I was supposed to do, you know? And it just stuck with me. Yeah. But um Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I love it. This was oh, yeah. this is a great meeting. Like yeah. you know, yeah, this just, is cool. It was uh it was fun, man. It was therapeutic and mm-hmm. something I needed to do. I told my sponsor I was doing this today and he's like, dude, that's fucking awesome. You Sweet. Know? And uh 
I'll send it to you. You can let your buddy. You can send it to your yeah. your yeah. peeps. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Man. It's Some uh, follow and stuff, and yeah, that'd be, yeah. That'd be sweet. Yeah. I followed you guys, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I did. Yeah, I watched, listened to a couple, and uh, yeah, keep doing what you guys are doing, man. It's, we'll uh, definitely have you on for. I mean, she knows a lot about golf, but yeah. we'd love to have you on and just. Oh yeah. Just tear apart golf, golf or something maybe <laughs> at the end of the season with the FedEx Cup and dude I, I uh, go through all the points and how everything works and because I mean I know a general good amount of golf but yeah. I mean I don't know a lot of like a lot of the names and like yeah, yeah. the different tours and yeah. you know sometimes they do scratch sometimes yeah. and how the rounds work and yeah. handicaps like handicaps I don't understand handicaps yeah. see I can, I can sit down and explain it all to you man like I know I know golf to a tee but the FedEx Cup points are a little tricky I mean I, I just know some tournaments you get more points than others like if you win you get this many points and I think you need so many points to get into the FedEx Cup at the end of the year you know when they play it mm-hmm. I think you have to have so many I'm pretty sure that's how it works but if you know. have so many points don't you also you have so many strokes too like you might if you have so many points you might not even have to play like the first round or something like that I'm not sure Okay. I'm I was sure. looking into that the other day too, so I'm curious. Yeah, no, about I'm pretty it. sure you got to play all four rounds okay. in any golf tournament. You yeah, got to play all the four right. rounds. You I'm gotta, going you off gotta... of a video game. I played in yeah. in two K and <laughs> yeah. I like just played every tournament and I just smoked everybody. And when I got to the actual FedEx Cup, I somehow ended up like I was already six strokes ahead or something like yeah. that. Or yeah. Oh, okay. Handicaps are very simple. Uh, I'll explain them to you. They're okay. they're simple, but like you know, professional golfers. They're playing at like plus fives and plus fours, which is below zero. So a plus four handicap is someone that's going to shoot four under on average. <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? And, and Tiger <laughs> wow. Woods in his prime was like, I believe, a plus seven or eight. Wow. That's how good he was. <laughs> wow. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 1.8, which is considered scratch. You know, 1.8. So like my... On most courses, especially my home course, which is Ponderson, I'm usually shooting about two over par. So seventy-two. I'm usually uh, my I'm usually shooting around seventy-four. Not know? bad. It's not yeah. bad. Dude. Every once in a while, I might throw out a seventy-one or seventy-two. You know. Yeah. Yeah, we get that on the front nine. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, for real. Sometimes, yeah. Yeah. It takes Those... a lot of work, man, and that's yeah. that's the thing about golf. It's, it's we go uh, out there to have a good time. Yeah, though, oh, yeah. Really. And that's okay. Yeah, you know? that's right. really all we do. That's okay. I just I take balls. it to the heart, man. Like I, I like dove into golf, and I just like yeah. love it, man. My grandpa was really good, man. Like if you look up his stats, he was he was a stud, man. Yeah, like he had like thirty six top tens, four runner ups. He won once, played in the Masters. Oh wow! I mean, he that's was, dope. Yeah, dude. Really I dad's told dad. you it was yeah. in my blood. Yeah, that's you cool. think I was kidding? Yeah. So it's like that was I was trying to strive for. I'm like, you know, when I got sober, I'm like, man, I'm gonna get golf and I'm gonna hit it hard, and I did, man. And it's like it's in my blood for sure. It's just I have that feel. I have right. that feel. Some people don't. Some people do, man. But yeah. I have that feel, man. If I'm a hundred yards in. I usually, I'm, I'm getting it close. Nice. Yeah. It's just oh, yeah. all about making putts, man. Jay's right. jealous of my drive. <laughs> she, on par threes, she steps up to the men's tees and just hits a smooth driver and just lands on the deck. <laughs> it's like, what's disgusting. Fuck? Yeah, it's disgusting. Nailed it. Key, key word in that, smooth. Smooth as soup. Smooth as soup. I do. I've been trying to slow my swing down because I notice when I try to put power into it, it just goes way right. Le- yep. Way right. Yeah, or, putting a lot of spin on the ball. So I'm just trying to slow my swing down and just keep a good motion. Yeah. And I mean, dude, one of the best best players you can watch for swing advice <laughs> is Freddie Couples. That dude is swing is just butter. I mean, he's he's like 50-some 50 year, 50 years old now, but... 
just like no effort whatsoever, dude, and he hits it a mile. I mean, yeah. it's just ridiculous. A mile. Like, yeah. it's, it's, uh, some, I mean, I don't know. I mean, golf has changed a lot. You got those guys that, like, Dustin Johnson and John Rahm and Cameron Champ and 300, 320 th- yards. Carry, yeah. Carry it's, through the air. I mean, every once in a while, I'll do that. Like, I can hit, I've carried, I've hit the ball. When I was out in Arizona, I hit, a, I hit one ball that was like 350. Wow. That you're, you're talking, these guys are playing on courses that are super dry. Super fast. Right. Yep. I mean, they're rough. Their fairways there are probably mowed at fucking, you know, low. I mean, I don't know the measurements. I mean, I don't, I forget what we measure or what we mow ours at, but they're low and they're tight. So when you hit a fairway out and those courses, man, that fucking ball is rolling it's like going. 20, 30 yards. Well, we're playing you know, at we're playing moist in, and super right. yeah, in, in, in fairways <laughs> that might get cut once a week. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a whole different animal on, yeah, we're on happy super nice courses. We're happy when we hit like 190, 180, oh, yeah. maybe 200 <laughs> once in a while. But yeah. no, we'll have to go out and play. Yeah, okay. yeah. that'll yeah. be a good time. I think I think what you guys said about the, the four man scramble against me that'd be fun. That would be fun. I would be so excited to do that. Yeah, that'd be fun. It would be yeah. Yeah. Four of us scramble versus him. I, that'd be close for us. It'd be cool. Yeah. Dude. Uh, Let's do it'd it. Be cool. Let's do it. We should totally. We should set that up. I would totally do that. I, I the thing is, man, is. The last two Saturdays, man, I shit. Two Saturdays ago, I shot 84, 85, and then this Saturday, I shot 81. That's, that's bad for me. Right, right. You know, and that's the thing. When you get into, when you start upping your game, and like, you know, if you guys shoot 90, you're like, hell yeah, and that's good. Right. You know? yeah. that's, that's good. And then, then you want to shoot below 90. And then when you start shooting in the 80s all the time, like I was, I was shooting, you know, like 81, 82, 83. Then I'm like, all right, it's time to start fucking shooting in the 70s. It's been like four years now. I got to start doing something. So then I started working on my putting, knowing, you know, picking out what part of my game I need to work on. And I wasn't making putts, you know. And then I started fucking draining putts, and my handicaps went, you know. Wow. And it's like, when you can put in four birdies around, you know, that that makes a huge difference. When I can yeah, get one birdie around, I'm good with that. Fuck, I'm happy a if car. I got a car. Yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we appreciate you fans for chiming in today. Um, we appreciate you, Noah, for coming in and Thanks sharing and being vulnerable and sharing Thanks your story with there. us. Yeah, we appreciate fun. you guys. We'll see you guys later. Bye, guys. Peace. Later. <laughs>